hello everybody. This is Will Beeman here uh, with a special episode of Superstructure. My co-host today is Scott Ferguson from Money on the Left and from school for me. From, from uh, school. Yeah, Scott, my, my friend Scott from school. Um, <laughs> and and continuing that track, we're going to talk about The Little Mermaid. Um, <laughs> uh so yeah, we we are going to talk about the Little Mermaid, the 1989 uh, Disney version. I was developing a, a history and theory of animation course um, where I teach at the University of South Florida, and we took on the world history of animation and had all kinds of interesting theoretical uh, insights to, to develop about animation, and we took on what's known as the Disney Renaissance, which um, arguably is kicked off by Who Framed Roger Rabbit in the late 1980s, but then really gets going in earnest with uh, the release of the mega success that is The Little Mermaid in 1989. And I was, last spring, I mean, I've seen this film many times, yeah, uh, but I was really taken by just how 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 many meanings are uh, at issue in this film and i mean i just got i i went down to to pick the wrong metaphor the rabbit hole of this movie <laughs> and was delighted um and taught it and and it was wonderful but then in september of 2022 well after the class ended a new trailer dropped for the Halle Bailey vehicle, the new Little Mermaid, which is a live-action Little Mermaid. And of course, mm-hmm. it's only slightly live-action because it's all filled with VFX. It's just photorealistic VFX rather than cartoonish ones. Um, and unfortunately, as one can come to expect nowadays, there was a massive racist and sexist backlash against the trailer, against Halle Bailey, uh, mm-hmm. against Disney, and um, suddenly the the my experience with the sort of contested complexities and multiple voices that are at stake in this 1989 film came rushing back. Yeah. Um, and seem to uh, seem to require revisiting in a more public way, which is why we're here. And and I think the the thing that really pushed it over the edge for me is I saw, I saw this meme uh, that was produced. I mean, it's horrible. I shouldn't be laughing, but I'm laughing because it's so horrible. Yeah, this meme that was shared on Facebook by somebody who is a self-identified progressive and was making fun of it. Um, but still somebody, somebody made it. Yeah. Um, as someone had the series of thoughts that, that led to this meme. Um, right. So maybe you want to describe, describe. Yeah. This meme. So, so a little, uh, a little meme on Sen here. Um, uh, so you have a Confederate flag, uh, overlaid with Ariel from the 1989 Little Mermaid with her, lily white skin and uh red hair and underneath in typewriter font is don't take away my history (laughs) the 
right? The assumption of don't take my history is white people have a history, a history mm-hmm. of popular movies, and it is supposed to be self-identically white and feminine on patriarchal terms and um, unified and stable. And the, the recent trailer and the recent film is supposed to somehow introduce otherness or heterogeneity or multiplicity that contaminates or doesn't belong there. Right. And um, we not only disagree, but we're here to actually grant the wish that is being uh, called for in this meme, which is, don't take away my history. Well, we're here to, to tell you about your history, which is our history, which mm-hmm. includes the Little Mermaid, which includes the the novella, The Little Mermaid, written in the 19th century by Hans Christian Andersen. So there's there's actually a deeply multiplicitous history here that was never not not multiple. Yeah, and and also, you know, that includes the bad stuff that we want to criticize too. Right. You know, um, and but it, in a certain way, I guess we also want to say that like. You know, the the upshot of this is not um, the bad stuff contaminates the possibility for a, a Little Mermaid with a black actress either. Um, you know, that, that these are all, um, yeah, that there's just a deep ambivalent multiplicity that is kind of constitutive at, at every step. And what's interesting about this film, and there's, and there's a history both in in Disney and in classical Hollywood, um, particularly around the musical number and um, the kind of, yeah, and, and Broadway um, and just these, these aesthetic forms that sort of thematize the way that, that the management of all of these different perspectives and all of these different readings and these dialogues between the, the exclusionary and that which it excludes and that which it disavows, but is nevertheless present, um, and even can be advanced, um, sort of covertly, how all of that is managed collectively as part of a production. On one level, the film is staging a conflict between Ursula, this kind of, you know, queer cabaret dancer who, you know, is based on uh, Divine, the kind of, you know, John Waters character and collaborator, um, who is a drag uh, drag queen. Um, it sort of is staging a conflict between Ursula representing, you know, evil queerness and this kind of Disney tradition of seductive queer villains. Um and versus this kind of rational order that has to reestablish itself. But on the other hand, this rational order um, in the first place, you know, Triton's masculinity uh, is shown to be constitutively queer at, at every step in the first place. So there's there's all of these ways where the the kind of simple preferred readings are, I guess, kind of constitutively undermined um, in a lot of ways. And as we go through, um, you know, we're part of the money on the left happy family. So we hmm. will have to be talking about money and and 
abstraction and um, critiquing certain zero-sum logics that we see in the film, but also um, also surprisingly affirming some some very non-zero-sum logics that that manifest themselves aesthetically and socially in the narrative. But maybe we can um, step back and maybe talk about um, some of the the theoretical thinking that we have in mind in our approach, right? So mm-hmm. you are you are already beginning to talk about how there are m- multiple voices, yeah, at stake in this film. Um, that that sometimes are very perpendicular to one another, sometimes resonate, sometimes are are, are totally oppositional to one another, and we'll get into all that. But we want to affirm a way of letting those multiple voices speak and evaluating them and sort of enjoying them and, and, and <laughs> criticizing them when needed um, that, that isn't zero sum, right? That allows them all to resonate because that's how reality works. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? And, these, so, and these films are, you know, I mean, in, in the way when we talk about the uni and how universities are these massive provisioning authorities that are not just, you know, one thing. They're, you know, landlords, they're, you know, places of education, they're, um, you know, they're, they're big employment centers. Uh, I think, you know, when we're talking about Disney, uh, that... Yeah, I mean, my gosh, um, and and the and also the Disney Renaissance is a period of Disney kind of qualitatively um, expanding and and I guess yeah, what you could call a horizontal way, right? Like they're they're um, expanding the theme parks and the like, you know, all all of this kind of thing too. Um, so there's you know, point being, anytime we talk about a film, you know. In, in film studies, we never want to just reduce the voice of the film to the intention of its director, um, because a film exists in the world um, and is in all kinds of ways uh, a complicated speech act that is anticipating its response and keying itself to its response and doing so in multiple ways um, and and doesn't have a handle on its response um, or on all the different ways that people can read it. There have been a lot of, um, prior to the release of the, the new Little Mermaid trailer, there's been a lot of criticism and backlash against the first Little Mermaid movie, the 1989 one that we're talking about, in the late... 2010s and into 2021 there a lot of um outspoken feminist um actors performers singers in particular have made announcements that they, they'll never let their their ch- children watch little mermaid in particular but also grouping it with uh, any number of uh, Disney princess movies, mm-hmm. starting with Snow White and Sleeping Beauty, um, and you know, and the list goes on and on. And um, I, I think that that's certainly 
worthy of a you know a concern mm-hmm. um and even a starting place for criticism um but i worry that it's too univocal and that it doesn't quite reckon with say the social historical differences between something like a sleeping beauty from the 1950s and what's going on in 1989 with this construction of a princess. So there's, um, when I was trying to work through this film last spring, I was kind of thinking about it as kind of playing out allegories or speaking to concerns and politics uh, and pleasures and pains at in three different registers that are, that are, pretty perpendicular to one another. And the mm-hmm. first the first big one is a story of white feminism in the 1980s. And um, to help us unpack that and make sense of it, um, I assigned this article that is in a, a reader called the Animation Studies Reader. It's by uh, a scholar named Amy M. Davis. And her her article or her chapter is called Women in Disney's Animation Features, 1989 to 2005. So she probably wrote this sometime after 2005. Um, so it's already, you know, oldish uh, as right. an article. And, you know, she, she shares a, a similar impulse, which is, yes, let's criticize patriarchal representations of gender mm-hmm. uh, when they are problematic. Um but she says we can't. We're doing a disservice to to this project and to the politics if we reduce them to a flat, ahistorical, or one-dimensional critique. Um, so the you know the the kind of just so story, critical story of Disney's 1989 Little Mermaid is oh, it's terrible. You know she's a helpless princess who has to transform her body and give up her voice, right? Her ability to represent herself metaphorically, yeah. but and literally. Right. Um, and and get her dad's permission. And get dad's right. permission. Um and in order to to go where to go marry a white dude, right? A strong <laughs> white dude yeah. on land. And it's not that that's not well, some of that isn't quite true. Like she doesn't actually get dad's permission. She betrays him and then he has to come around and see, but we're already yeah. complicating it. Mm-hmm. And that that's very different from what's going on in, in Snow White, which is complicated in its own way, but we're not going to talk yeah, about yeah. that right now. Um, and so, so this author, Amy Davis is saying, let's pay attention to what's happening in these films. And so if, First, she starts with, well, what's going on in Hollywood cinema during the 70s and 80s that that is laying the conditions, the background of legibility for representations of women and mostly white women Mm -hmm. uh, on the Hollywood screen? And she's not saying this to say that, oh, and things are just progressively getting better. But and there might be a hint of that. um, But we don't necessarily have to follow follow um, all those impulses, but nevertheless, I think she gives us 
a number of characterizations of, of what's changing. So she says that during the 70s and 80s, mainstream portrayals of women begin to change. And specifically, the definition of a so-called respectable woman begins to change. Because prior to this time, respectable in terms of, you know, profession or, you know, where, where a woman is supposed to be at any given time of her life, um, her sexuality or lack of sexuality or subdued or repressed sexuality was mm -hmm. identified with certain codes, right? So um, things are kind of changing. So you start to see um, single career women characters. You start to see working wife and mother characters. You see single mothers and you see all kinds of permutations that appear in films like Working Girl and even Die Hard, although <laughs> you could yeah. say that in Die Hard, the, the characters, uh, you know, that status is she's seen as kind of like uppity and like, you know, she's mm -hmm. emasculating him. Um, so so there are like positive representations and negative representations, but the field of possibilities and legibilities are, are shifting. She points out doing archival research that women's magazines are transforming white feminism during this time. And we would, you know, probably add that it's pretty neoliberal, but it doesn't mean it's not happening or that it, it, it isn't actually um, meaningful in some way. There, These white um, women are being called out and being said, you know, you can have it all. You can have a career. You can have a sec you can have a sexual life um, <laughs> that, that you don't have to hide or you don't have to pretend isn't there. Um, you can have children. Uh, and um, it, it becomes increasingly acceptable for women to appear at once respectable, yeah. <laughs> active social participants, um, and as sexual on screen. And of course, she points out there's like all kinds of limits and exclusions, and it's, it is mostly white, and right there are all these problems. But then she says, okay, so from there, what is what is the Disney Renaissance doing? Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, maybe just a word on the Disney Renaissance, right? So uh, Disney is known for going through many periods. There have been animation scholars that have done the periodizing and then other scholars who have come along and said, no, 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 that's too clean and that's too neat. Um, the idea is that Disney went through a kind of golden age from the... 30s of Snow White through the 50s and maybe even into the early 60s getting to films like uh, Sleeping Beauty and um, Cinderella um, and uh, what else? 101 Dalmatians. Right. And and then there was a there was a series of so-called failures, um, a, a shift to a lot of live action work. Uh, mm -hmm. And then films that like the Black Cauldron, um, uh, going getting into the sixties and seventies, they were just seen. They didn't make as much money. They weren't seen to be as innovative. You had production techniques that were sort of literally recycling old cells and just <laughs> filling them up with old characters. Which I'm I'm laughing because people make fun of it, but that. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But mm -hmm. anyway, it was seen as lazy. So yeah. once you get this injection of the collaboration between um, Disney and Industrial Light and Magic for uh, 
Who Framed Roger Rabbit in 88, and then launching on this new series of high, supposedly high-quality animated films, beginning with The Little Mermaid, this is what gets called the Hollywood Renaissance as a, a sense of a rebirth of the old, good, high-quality, high-money-making mm-hmm. years uh, earlier on, right? So as many female princess characters were at the heart of so many, not all, but so many of the the classical Disney era, you have yeah. many princesses emerging uh, in the Renaissance era. And what, um, what Amy Davis will say in surveying them is that they are represented in, in new ways and in different ways. So she points out that in the golden era, the classical era of Disney, women tended to be represented um, as somehow inherently morally good, um, Mm -hmm. the protagonists, the princesses, and they tended to acquiesce to patriarchal figures. Right. Their 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 goodness is a cleanliness, right? It's it's an unmixedness. Um, They have not yet been... Yeah, they've not yet been acted upon. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right, 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 right. But then she says the Disney Renaissance female leads um, variously expressed the era's turn to multiculturalism and tolerance of difference. You know, she's looking at films like Pocahontas, for example, um, that, you know, come in the wake of uh, The Little Mermaid. I suppose that's a pun. Um, <laughs> and she goes on to say that heroines exhibit integrity through their own choices and actions they express for sexuality without risking impropriety they grow in their independence over the course of the period and yeah i mean maybe we would say that 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 has neoliberal resonances but it's still meaningful and it's a difference from the earlier era yeah and I, i think one one kind of formal trademark of this is is what gets called the i want song um, and these these are musical numbers where the the heroine, I mean, you know, like it, as the name implies, right? Like it's just saying like what her dreams are um, and, you know, and it's just kind of it's just this sort of open yearning. And and yeah, where like you compare that to the kind of passively coded femininity um of the of the previous era you know this is like kind of the repudiation of that um because it's sort of is the the woman finding her voice um which in the in the little mermaid is also interesting because it's you know her losing her voice is you know sort of the false bargain that we get right um but but, it's also a tragedy we want her to have her voice right Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Hence, hence the falseness, because she at the end, as we'll get to, can have it both ways. Um, she can have it all. Yeah, ladies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but this particular song um, is uh, it's called um, Part of Your World. And I think that this actually will be um, a segue for me into someone that I was thinking about when I watch this and have been you know thinking about in general in my work more recently over i think the past year um which is mikhail bakhtin 
And uh, Mikhail Bakhtin is alive during the early Soviet era and then the Stalinist era. And he kind of originally is the sort of, you know, participant um, in debates about Russian formalism and like, you know, art movements alongside people like Sergei Eisenstein and those um, sorts of people in this very you know, kind of free, um, free experimental discursive moment. Um, and then he ends up being, you know, having his voice taken away a little bit, um, by, by Stalin. So he's exiled and originally he's going to be sent to a gulag, but because he has a health condition, he's instead, um, exiled to Kazakhstan where, uh, which is, the the periphery the border the you know the surface between <laughs> the the Soviet Union and the um yeah I won't I won't um <laughs> play that analogy too hard but um <laughs> between that and the free world with gravity and people walking on legs um <laughs> he and he works at a bookstore um for the rest of his life uh but he's so he ends up being a theorist of dialogue and what he calls dialogism which for him is you know it's it's a critique um really of dialectics and you know the idea that um that voices form univocally um in response to the violent imposition or violent premise of of the voice that they're responding to um Bakhtin's dialogism instead uh, kind of begins with with a with a multiplicity that is partial and multiply entangled and incredibly incredibly abstract and uh even at the same time that it is um it's historical he has a kind of an idea of deep historical time where you know something can you know, there, there's that saying, right? Insanity is doing the same thing again and again and expecting different results. But I kind of hate that saying because <laughs> to, to me, something externally can happen and then cause the same thing to develop a new meaning, right? Because meaning is not intrinsic um, and nobody has the last word on what on what a social meaning is. Um, and this particular musical number in this title reminds me a lot of Bakhtin, um, because it is, the desire is, I want to be part of your world, right? Um, which is a desire to, um, to be recognized by the, by the other, but like, like I, like there, there's a way where there are multiple worlds, you know, that are not, I want to be it's not I want to be integrated into your world and turned into a housewife or whatever, you know. <laughs> it's it's I want um I want the way or ways that I am to be afforded space to to breathe, right? Um to again use little mermaid <laughs> analogies, right? Um in yeah, in in your world. And so um Bakhtin has this has this passage, um, which was, uh, this is from a letter that, um, that he wrote, uh, for Soviet literary journal, um, later in his life called Novi Mir, 
Um, I, I'm sure that I'm butchering that, but you know, um, that's, uh, be our guest. Yeah. That's, that's multiplicity. Um, (laughs) (laughs) he, uh, he writes, there exists a very strong, but one-sided and thus untrustworthy idea that in order to better understand a foreign culture, one must enter into it, forgetting one's own and view the world through the eyes of this foreign culture. This idea, as I said, is one-sided. Of course, a certain entry as a living being into a foreign culture, the possibility of seeing the world through its eyes, is a necessary part of the process of understanding it. But if this were the only aspect of understanding, it would merely be duplication and would not entail anything new or enriching. Creative understanding does not renounce itself, its own place in time, its own culture, and it forgets nothing. In order to understand, it is immensely important for the person who understands to be located outside the object of his or her creative understanding, in time, in space, in culture, right? So we have here the difference between self and other is also the difference between the moment that we're in and even our future selves, right? So we can think about we can think about these Renaissance moments um, of consideration as these encounters between, you know, what would, you know, like the the voice of Pixar is being considered alongside as the other, right, that one can traverse to while still being distinct from it. Um, but also we can think of this as multiple voices within the same, the same era, right? You know, this is the, this is the queer voice alongside the, the straight voice, right, in, in, you know, say Broadway and the the musical number. Yeah, I want to come back to with that in mind, the want song or the I I wish song, mm-hmm. um, which is so first the archetype for the I wish or the I want song or one of them is uh, someday my prince will come, uh, which is from Snow White. Yeah, right, right. film, right, and you know there have been for. For all the ways in which we've been saying, oh, the Disney princesses have always been passive, there are there are readings and arguments of Snow White as, you know, not some kind of uh, you know, uh strong socialist woman, but but mm-hmm. but definitely partaking in a sense of a new urban womanhood. I mean, she is on her own and she is acting. But anyway, there there is something regressive and patriarchal. Yeah. And and someday my prince will come. And then, right, this this gets tweaked again and again and again on Broadway and on screen, and we don't have time to unpack the whole history, but just thinking about um, part of your world and part of that world, which is the, iter- the iteration on the lyric that we get in The Little Mermaid of 1989, that is tapping into a queer identification, which we'll talk about more, but mm-hmm. a queer identification with Snow White by a queer lyricist. Um, Howard Ashman, and it's it's tweaking and reading the multiplicity of voices even in the I Want or the I Wish song. And I think it's also interesting that it's not I wish for a prince or I want the prince or I want Prince Eric. Mm-hmm. It's just an open, I think as you were suggesting, it's an evocative openness that I want something that isn't what is immediately before me. Yeah, right. it's a I little want, bit I want inclusion, but it's it's something cuz I want to be part of your world, but it's it's like I want inclusion, but it's 
it's not just addressed towards some like you know Hegelian prince. world spirit or yeah, yeah, or yeah, yeah, yeah. or an individual prince, but it it is something the that's Hegelian a bit... world prince, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, which is just Machiavelli, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and um, then and then what I just rewatched the trailer for mm-hmm. the. 2023 uh, Little Mermaid that has not yet come out. So we have not seen it, but we've seen the trailer. And, you know, it's set up as a reveal. uh, And we get mostly just Ariel's tail. And we, and kind of slipping in and out of, you know, coral and the camera's moving through the photorealistically rendered coral. Um, And it's only at the very end you see her. You see her from below swimming up and you still don't see her, the top half of her body in her face. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally you see, uh, you know, a recreation, a renaissance of the, the original shot um, looking down in that kind of cavern of collect- collectibles that she has. Right. And she's looking up and she's singing part of your world. And it, I mean, I can see why it got the racist going. Because it's it's really it's like you know I'm a black performer and I want to be part of your world. I mean, it really, yeah, yeah. it really, it's really uh, moving. Yeah, um, and n- not just I mean, thinking with with the Little Mermaid here and all of the Little Mermaid's collectibles, right? Like, I I'm all I I've been a fan, you know, like I've been part of this world like i've been watching your cinema but also a thing i want to talk about with this song and just in general is there's all of these um playful kind of like renaming of different objects you know and kind of uh because she she collects these objects and she doesn't even know what they're purposes necessarily she thinks that a comb it or that a that a fork um is you know used as a comb a pipe is is a musical instrument (laughs) and of course she gets all her information from this like blabbery mouth uh, mansplainer of a seagull (laughs) yeah that's right uh, yeah but that was the concept for him right (laughs) and and we we laugh at him and we laugh at his we laugh at his mansplaining mm-hmm. um but then we also are asked to embrace the the creative reinterpretation of these artifacts that are being defamiliarized from the human world and in a way yeah. you know it's it's in the it's a popular manifestation of the tradition of uh, surrealism and the surrealists would talk about what they called the found object yeah um, where they would yeah. just find a, an object that was obscure they didn't really know what it was they didn't know what it was for and that was supposed to be kind of revelatory of orders of meaning and relations and being and desire that you know were repressed yeah. in our or, everyday or lives. photos of familiar objects that defamiliarize them Right? Yeah, so like yeah, a, a that close too. up of some pocket lint or something that that you look at and you kind of don't know like yeah it's you're, and you, you be you're given permission by the ambiguity of it to engage and creatively change all these different registers of like you know meaning and order yeah and it speaks the the object speaks in multiple voices and this was very mm-hmm. important to uh, a Marxist. 
uh, critic and cultural theorist, Walter Benjamin, that many people might have heard of. Um, he made a big deal out of um, these kind of surrealist techniques and their um, not just aesthetic and social potential, but their you know their political and revolutionary potential. So all this is you know happening in um, the Little Mermaid, and then you know this will come back again and again. It's it's um, we also get this figure of the collector in Pixar's Wall-E several years mm, later. He right. he too is a collector um, and kind of. M- classifying and misclassifying and misinterpreting and misusing what all these human artifacts are uh, in ways that are um, have also been read as you know um, defamiliarizing and, and interesting enough. yeah and and I guess yeah and just to drive home the kind of like you know the the collector as someone who works at Disney right and as yeah like a non-normative voice non-normative in the normative coding of of the media that it's consuming this this actually is not just a moment that happens after the production of of a film where it's it's kind of subversively consumed but but actually that's constitutively baked in to to all of these things um you know especially playing there's multiple people making it and it's yeah playing to a world of legibilities within disney and and broadway and these you know musical traditions there are people like howard ashman who for the little mermaid made the decision to include an i want song and he was a gay man this ties into this history i think uh like maybe we can actually pause and just comment on the original screenplay of the little mermaid too because i don't think that we've actually explicated that right right well i think it might be worth talking about it from the point of view of um this kind of white but also multicultural feminism yeah and it's you know it's a proto what would come to be called lean in feminism right um right so it 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 has its limits. Um, I don't know. How would you, how would you, from the point of view of gender, gender representation and Disney princesses, how would you describe the story? I mean, we've already begun to complicate it. Yeah. She's actively curious. Mm -hmm. She's an active interpreter. Yeah, right. So she's, she's, she's a, a vocal participant, right? Like thinking with, Thinking with, you know, Bakhtin here, where there is no outside of the multiplicity of voices, the fact that she has a voice and her voice is is a big part of the plot, but also, yeah, it's just implicitly there in the fact that she she has a creative voice, right? Like she's not, um, she's an interpreter and she's a she's a namer of things, um, and a namer of things from a subordinated position um you know vis-a-vis the 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 above you know human world um so yeah i i think you know i guess i would describe it as you know there's there's this desire um she's she's of the underwater world that is kind of coded as as patriarchal but but also is winking at us or disney is winking at us that it's maybe not so patriarchal um because 
her father, you know, uh, King Triton, who, yeah, as we said, is, you know, very muscly and, you know, kind of is is sort of the patriarchal role in so many ways is, you know, giving her her rules to live by and is deciding who she's going to wed and, you know, is the person whose permission she needs. Not only is that going to be undermined at the level of plot and, you know, narrative because she she changes his mind by disobeying him. Um, and by working outside of the patriarchal logic of what you're supposed to do, literally by by entering in a entering into a different world with different logics and then causing him to have to reckon with how that world works and make a decision that way rather than kind of intrinsically to the underwater world. Um, but also, there are all of these moments where he and um, Eric, uh, kind of her prince, um, and even even Sebastian uh, have have these very feminine kind of secret moments where they they for a moment they will swoon or they will bat their eyelashes or they will you know do all of these all of these uh, they they will take pleasure in these kind of um, yeah, feminine uh, modes of engagement and and ways of interpreting uh, what they're seeing, and this it's especially true with with Triton, who who does actually have have a moment where he kind of is like he thinks that he's by himself and he is talking to to a plant in this kind of like you know, well, what what do you think uh, is going on with Ariel? Do you think she found a man, you know, and like all of this kind of stuff? And then, you know, we we see we see this um, and in, in a funny way that is a little bit like classical, classical Hollywood or classical Disney, right? Like we have the omniscience there and we we are privy to him as this kind of peeping Tom. Um, but then, yeah, within the plot, he gets... He gets kind of found right by by Sebastian, who also has moments of doing this. Um, But this kind of this patriarchal omniscient perspective is being used to undermine its own rules, you know, like our our omniscience um, as this kind of, you know, masculine coded um, spectator who who sees everything knows everything is in full agreement with the rules of the world um actually what we're being what we're being made privy to is that the world is like you know queer in a certain way Mm -hmm. and there's at least two major numbers starting with the first number um in which a whole kind of um, a whole Broadway type spectacle of singing and dancing and choreography is organized around Ariel. And there's this reveal where it's, you know, it's all pointing to her in the center. She's the star. She's being hailed as Mm -hmm. in a very particular kind of way. And two times, you you get that last shot where she's supposed to appear and the spot is empty. Right. Yeah. So she's evacuated the the 
the vastly orchestrated patriarchal role that she's being mm-hmm. that she's being given. And then I think something else and again this is not to say that the film is some kind of, you know, feminist dream, but the film is also um negotiating and and uh trying trying to speak back to how how the prince is figured. You've already mentioned he kind of swoons a lot and even mm-hmm. though he's buff and ripped and all that he he also is, his body language is very he's like melts and he's just he's got a syrupy smile when he's in love and these kinds of things but yeah. then there's this early moment in the first scene where we meet him on the ship uh his servant gets him a birthday present and the birthday present is this like intense this massive masculine heavy metal statue of him like yeah, he's like Napoleon, right? Yeah, Napoleon, yeah. and he's got like a big old phallic sword, and and Eric is like, wah, wah, you know, he Eric doesn't like it, you know, yeah. um, and then it, you know, it it um, as things unfold and there's a storm, um, the the ship is hit uh, by lightning and it, it 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 turns over and then that that statue sinks to the bottom of the ocean. And this is, you know, no loss for for Eric. So despite the fact that, yes, you can say it's a story about a skinny white girl with red hair who's conventionally pretty with a button nose and um, and then she gives up her voice to find to find a prince. It doesn't actually play out in many ways that framework is being evoked for its legibility to do other things. And I think one could argue that the film's success in part in 1888, not 18, 1989 mm-hmm. and, and beyond, um, owes to the way that it's playing, playing with those forms in different ways, not to not to because because of the fact that it somehow is just playing out the same damn script every time, which is the the bad patriarchal simplified um, critique. Yeah, and there's and this scene also I think uh, captures something that's everywhere in the film, which are these kind of cross identifications between uh, between dominant and subordinated positions across different patriarchal orders, where he supposedly the the prince character that everything is building up to when is his wife going to be ready from the plot factory <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. um is he kind of wants to traverse under the sea right like he he wants his statue to be at the bottom of the ocean um he wants to yeah like get in a certain way yeah he wants to get off this ship or at least he wants to um to relate differently to what his job is supposed to be um and so it it is really important i think that um that this encounter this this kind of um dialogic encounter without a full merging or mixing between the two worlds but just a kind of a a dialogue between them is truly multi-directional i think um and he he wants to you know he wants to find out maybe what it's what it would be like to 
yeah, not just be like a stodgy prince, right? Um, and I think that this this fits into something that the film is doing in at so many different levels, which you could you could call it contradictory, you could call it hypocritical, you could call it you know ambiguous in a in maybe a generative way, um, or you know polyvocal um, in term like it it this is also just an artifact of the fact of it having multiple voices but there are all of these ways where both the above from the perspective of underwater the the human world is coded as this patriarchal place full of fish fish murderers and like <laughs> you know um I, I think triton calls them fish eaters right uh mm. and um you know it's very much civilization i mean what could be more colonial than than a ship on at sea that that you're hiding from you know you coded as part of the environment and the ship being kind of this you know yeah very colonial image um on the other hand triton is also a patriarchal you know and a patriarchal icon here um and and the traversal initially, yeah, is going to be carried out in this way that is that's like very over the top queer in a way that we're supposed to be suspicious of because it's Ursula, um, who who's you know basically is like I'm going to give you a sex change operation and send you <laughs> to the you know, but in exchange you're going to lose your voice, um, and. Yeah, there's just so there's a way where the traversal is coded as queer and bad in the first instance, but also like we are we're also being told that like no, this doesn't have to be bad, or at least we're yearning for it to not be bad, right? Along with Ariel, right? Like mm -hmm. we don't want her her uh, dialogue with the human world to happen on the terms of this like horrible bargain. Um, and, and we get a sense from Triton that all of the characters kind of are yearning for that a little bit too. Right. They just can't imagine it mm -hmm. necessarily. Um, Maybe we can shift gears to uh, sort of another register of allegory or voicing um, that can get us into uh, some more critical talk because uh, mm -hmm. we've been we've been swooning so much and I want to I want to swoon a little less, but then we can yeah. come back and swoon. Yeah. Um, so thinking about this in the history of political economy and culture and the culture industry, as the Frankfurt School would like to call it. So this is 1989, right? This is mm -hmm. this is the the Cold War is is ending. Uh, the Berlin the Berlin Wall is falling. Um, it, in this very same year, you have commentators, you know, triumphing the um, the ultimate, you know, the demise of the socialist experiment and the triumph of so called capitalist democracy. Yeah, and Perhaps most emblematically, you have um, the scholar Francis Fukuyama, um, who um, wrote a book about this that would come out in 92, but in 1989, the same year, uh, published uh, uh, 
a, a first salvo from this book with this essay titled "The End of History?" Question mark. He he's a a, a conservative Hegelian, and he's <laughs> uh, um, I think most of our listeners would have heard of him before. So this was published in summer of 1989 in the National Interest, and he's making the case that the Hegelian world spirit has yeah. triumphed. Right. And we have and, a world government now called yeah, capitalism. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. And that basically the uh, US driven multinational capitalist empire is the end of history. There's nowhere left to go because mm-hmm. it's over. Right. So this is this kind of triumphalism is absolutely naturalizing in a historical and deeply political way, the changes that are going on in the world that are still contested. You know, this is Washington and, and um, Wall Street are trying to remake the, the, the former, the becoming former Soviet bloc, uh, mm-hmm. according to a neoliberal model, um, introducing all kinds of new precarities and, you know, the end of full employment and in all of these ways. But Things remain kind of up for grabs. And then, of course, the Disney uh, company, the Disney Corporation, is making its own massive moves uh, at this time. Um, So I just want to list a few of them. Um, Its investment, production, strategies, um, and its profits uh, are expanding. And they're less and less... um, really centering on these premier 2D features. So while we think of this as the Hollywood, sorry, excuse me, the Disney Renaissance, um, in which there's a rebirth of Disney animation, and that that's true, really the company just sees that as one of many, many projects. um, And it's not necessarily the most lucrative. Now, of course, it's going to, to use a, you know, a a term, especially from the time, it's going to have synergistic effects, right? You're going to, um, the, it, it's not like any of these one f- investment vehicles is, is, is like pure or cordoned off from the other, but the, these features weren't, weren't actually as central to the investment strategies, um, as we, mm-hmm. as we might think. Right. They're so part of th- the transcendent portfolio. That's right. So they are they're building new theme parks all over the world. So this is these are big imperial moves and um and starting a cruise line with giant cruise ships cruising all over the world. So yeah. definitely part of a new multinational post uh, Cold War uh, US empire. They pretty ruthlessly acquired a number of struggling animation studios around the world. They just bought them up and made them make Disney products. Um, Mm -hmm. They're expanding into TV series and direct-to-video releases. They started Touchstone Pictures, which um, was their first foray into non-G-rated material after we we shifted to the the rating system, which happened around 1968. Uh, So Touchstone Pictures made PG films, requiring parental guidance and, you know, probably one of the most successful films they made was Pretty Woman mm-hmm. about a prostitute with a heart of gold. Um, and they're also moving into Broadway and um, especially a little bit later in the 90s, staging Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King. Um, those are major, major um, uh, 
profit vehicles for them too. In 95, and again, this is a little later, but it's all part of the context, they uh, they stage a major corporate takeover of Capital Cities and ABC, the, the television uh, network, which they, they still own, and just expand into this multimedia conglomerate across um, filmmaking and television and uh, video and beyond. And they are just, I think, as you were suggesting at the beginning of our conversation, they're just ruthlessly reconfiguring the company and they're they're firing longtime employees that have had great loyalty to them. They're shutting down production units. And this is all going under um, the uh, new management of my, Michael Eisner, Jeffrey Katzenberg, who will go on to found DreamWorks, um, and Frank Wells. So this is the context in which, or part of the context, there's more context, <laughs> in which The Little Mermaid comes out. So to to come back and read the film from that point of view, you know, what what's going on in this film allegorically in terms of business and right. contracts um, and how might Disney, as this multinational becoming post-Cold War um, imperial corporation, what is it trying to say? And I guess my my gloss would be that it's um, making a villain out of the queer villain, mm-hmm. <laughs> Ursula, um, and making her be the the nasty, bad contract writer right. um, who gets who gets vulnerable, unfortunate souls. Uh, when they're down and exploits them toward their own ends, and you know, one one could argue that the Disney Corporation is precisely engaging in this kind of behavior, and um, by by portraying this as the bad guy, saying, "Well, no, we're Ariel. You know, we're we're just earnest, and we want." love and we want to transcend differences and we want yeah we wish that this wasn't necessary just like ariel (laughs) um and maybe it's not maybe but that was a movie but uh, maybe right right (laughs) and then so another part of this political economic context is the logics of uh fiscal and tax politics, which are, of course, not nece- not necessarily new to 1988, 89, 90, but are certainly, um, are, are certainly in- intensifying in problematic ways, right? So you have, you have a Democratic Party who has kind of given up, long given up throughout the Reagan era on kind of New Deal and Great Society promises uh, about full employment and civil rights. And you have all kinds of political and presidential rhetoric and promises uh, about balancing the budget. You know, very famously, George H.W. Bush, who would have been president during this time in the 88 election, would say, you know, read my lips, no new taxes. I'm going to balance this budget without raising taxes um, in this very zero-sum way. Yeah, uh, and, assuming... and also very speech-centered way, right? Read my univocal yeah, speech lips. lips. Yeah, right. My speech <laughs> lips, and then of course, right. The this those speech lips end up not telling the truth, right? Because mm-hmm. he does raise taxes to to play this um, zero sum game, and 
you know, that's, that is playing out, even though the story comes from us from before, um, that plays out in the contract, in Ursula's contract, which is you have to give up something to get something, right? Yeah. She, she has a line that's something like, you know, ain't nothing in this life is free or something, something mm-hmm. like that. You know, you have to pay with a pound of flesh. Right? You pay with your voice. Um, yeah, yeah. She's like queer Margaret Thatcher that way. <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think it's also Disney playing into widely naturalized, reified anxieties about zero-sum bargains, zero-sum economics, and, yeah, this sense that things can't be otherwise. This also, I think, opens up a major kind of uh, figure in in the story, which is the, the contract itself, right? Um, and... And I say contract itself in a way like um, because that sort of is is its ontological status. Right. Yeah. Um, Is that this contract kind of is a little bit autonomous, like from any jurisdiction, which is funny because at at one point um, Trident tries to zap it um, with his Trident and. No, uh, Triton. Yeah, oh, Triton. Triton. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So at one <laughs> at one point, I was like, "Did they really do that?" Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. Um, Triton tries to zap it with his trident, um, and it doesn't work. And Ursula is like, "Ah, you fool! This is legally binding. Um, you know, this is this is a fully legal document." And then that. Yeah, that, like, legal status is this, like, material hard limit, um, which, yeah, on the one hand, made me think a little bit of the, like, like, a very historical materialist, you know, conception of, like, well, this is, but this is how power has been historically, um, you know, the contract represents what is now the social relation. Um, and you can't just you can't just snap your fingers and get rid of that. Um, so like that's going on. Um, on the other hand, and this is this is this really is a polyvalent kind of workaround that the film is after, because on the one hand, this is Disney being like, we want to be multinational one world Disney government. And so <laughs> all of your little local ordinances and contracts, you know, are like, we want to subsume them and figure out ways to nest them within our greater designs. And at the level of plot, you know, Ursula gets uh, phallically impaled by, by the prince um, but it's complicated because he's, you know, he's not from her world, right? From her her jurisdiction necessarily, and nor is he imposing human sovereignty over underwater. Like that's that's not what what's going on there either. Um, it's a way for the plot to uh, look to externally related registers and social orders. To say, okay, yes, the contract is real, but still she could get stabbed by someone and drop <laughs> and drop the trident, and then the trident could free everybody. And somehow 
physical violence was not possible for Triton to use against her, but it is possible as a contingent event um, that could happen somewhere else in the world, right? And in particular, at, at this boundary between underwater and, and you know, land, um, which mm-hmm. is, yeah, the encounter between her and, um, and the prince. And so, yeah, on the one hand, this is like, Disney, you know, saying, well, we can, you know, we we can't just break laws, but we are so clever and big and like, you know, we can and we're the orchestrator, right, of all of these things, because that Mm -hmm. is that is what Disney is with respect to the plot. Um, We can we can orchestrate events so that so that laws are, you know, so that countries are pressured in all kinds of ways to change their laws and make them more uh, hospitable to Disney. So there, so there is that. Um, On the other hand, I do think that there is, yeah, that this is like a yearning for, and certainly in the register of, of queer readings of the film I do think that this is gesturing towards a different theory of law and contract that's not fully identical to itself because it exists in a world that's in excess of itself and where things in the world change, right? And where agency is not all spelled out in a contract. You know, it it can't. It can't be. Um, nor is it at the end of the film, you know? It's not that that Triton establishes the UN and you know <laughs> with with the prince and then everything is fully you know multinational in that <laughs> in that way either necessarily i mean certainly that reading's not prohibited i guess but i but i don't think that it's that it's the only one um no it's not and i think i'd like to turn our attention to the aesthetics and the animation aesthetics in particular in its in its context mm-hmm. and not just in its context but thinking with Bakhtin with that wonderful uh, quotation that you read from our own context right thinking in retrospect about that context so as many listeners probably are aware I have an ongoing critique that I've podcasted about and written about and will continue to publish about uh, of the um, the new Hollywood blockbuster and its um, particular kinds of aesthetics. And um, this is begun by Steven Spielberg and George Lucas in the mid to late 1970s and then really takes over animation with Pixar. And Pixar is, of course, working with George Lucas before it's even called Pixar in the late 70s or early 80s, producing all kinds of... Um, uh, effects for other kinds of films and making commercials and demos for car companies and doing all kinds of things, right? So, mm-hmm. but Pixar comes on the scene in a very popular, visible way for, you know, what we might call like everyday people and kids with Toy Story in 1995. Uh, but I guess even still, I think they're legible before that. They're making shorts for Sesame Street, right? So they're they're around, but they don't really explode uh, until 1995 with the release of Toy Story 1. And um, they are very much doubling, tripling down on 
these blockbuster aesthetics, which I have described as hyper Newtonian. They're obsessed with physical forces, immediate contact and engagement. Cause and effect can only be from immediate contingent events, often you know surviving a, a harrowing experience uh, or directly fighting or a, a chase sequence or something like that. And it's presented in this very immersive way um, for the spectator. And um, the only way that movement can work either characters moving on screen or really any element of the moving image can work, um, is moving through what you might call locomotion or contiguous movement from here to there. And as MMT theorists, we find this to be highly problematic because it too conspicuously finds an analog with our language for our liberal and neoliberal uh, languages of money, where we imagine that tax dollars have to move. There's some kind of finite quantity, and they they have to, and they're private, and they have to move from one place to another. And if you can't manage to move them from one place to another, well, then um, people are gonna not get fed, or not have a job, or 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 not have childcare or healthcare. Yeah, there's, and what what's kind of interesting about this movement from this patriarchal mid-century you know abstract order to another abstract order that is trying to not present itself as such is that even amidst a critique of irrational rationalization right which is this kind of liberal critique or or neoliberal critique becomes neoliberal critique of the Soviet Union before that of of fascism and of mid-century American liberalism what is substituted in its place is an implicit rationalism right which is physics because positing an absolute negativity of abstract orders where all that exists is motion you you know implicitly mathematics and physics and zero sum logics and all of these things are kind of baked into it and and it's no accident i think that this is this really is a kind of a a flip side of i mean this is an abstract order in its own right but it but it follows the logic of 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 a univocal abstract order you know of a sovereign declaration of a territory within which everyone is free right within which Mm -hmm. you can have locomotion and and it's okay because it's supervised or something you know, to then say, actually, now there's no supervision because the whole world is on. Like it just the it these things turn into each other. Um, in yeah, in these interesting ways that I think are being yeah reckoned with here in a in unconscious and guilty ways. Yeah. So aesthetically, the Little Mermaid is. It's a it's a really interesting in retrospect kind of anomaly, um, or I don't know if it's an anomaly. It just it doesn't it doesn't necessarily perfectly fit. So um, so you have these hyper Newtonian aesthetics that are being developed by live action by visual effects makers at Industrial Light and Magic, and then other places like Weta Digital Domain. And then, and then you have animation fully taking on this project and making 3D volumetric physics-driven animation. And then what's so fascinating is that 
the Pixar folks are clan in a clandestine relationship with Disney mm-hmm. during the Renaissance because they've developed this system they call the Computer Animation Production System. The abbreviation is CAPS. And it basically allows for the automate the digital automation and um, creation of all kinds of digital manipulations or digital tools for doing what used to be uh, traditional cell-based practices. So this was um, largely a scan and paint system. So you could you could do your drawings by hand and then scan them. And then the scanning brought the image into a computer. And then through the computer, you could use multiple kinds of software to do things like painting, which takes a lot of time, but digital painting, but other things like you can increase the layering effects um, that used to be made through what was called a multi-plane animation stand or a multi-plane camera, uh, which physically stacked uh, pieces of celluloid with Mm -hmm. various degrees of transparency to create a kind of layered, like a dioramic depth, you could call it. And those shots used to be rare and they would come like once or twice in one of the classical Disney films. And in these in these yeah. films, using the Pixar technology, the Pixar caps mach- machines, they were able to to pile up that depth in a new way. Yeah, which just just to say also, I, I think that this is another example of a kind of openly symbolic order turning into an implicitly symbolic one because the the symbol of the multiple planes is like this is each plane represents a different field of action in a way where representation is not just washing over you you know like you you recognize that this is stylized right that these are stylized planes of action but there's a difference between that and imitating locomotion over over like a a quote-unquote real z-axis right that's right and so what you'll see is over the course of the disney renaissance in films like beauty and the beast and aladdin and lion king there's all kinds of hyper newtonian effects that the pixar software is developing um they call they call these effects things like turbulence um Mm -hmm. that basically allowed for I mean, whenever you automate in digital animation, you it, it doesn't mean that you're that that nobody has to do anything. You can just press a button. Like it's still it's still highly skilled. It takes yeah. a long time. There's a lot of labor involved. But these effects basically allowed for this immersive, contiguous physics of locomotion to increasingly put their mark on the traditional 2D aesthetic and what happens is is that it's not really used in Little Mermaid. It really takes it, it really comes in more and more in the later films, but they've experimented a tiny bit in Little Mermaid. And that was at the end, uh, where Triton um makes it possible magically for Ariel to have legs and for her to be with and marry Eric. And then there's a a rainbow that is produced over the mm. Uh, the ship and that rainbow was produced with this caps technology. But what's to me fascinating about the whole the whole aesthetic of the Little Mermaid is that I mean, as I've put it to you in the past, it's much more like the aesthetics of a Peter Pan than yeah. it is like a Little Nemo. 
and in that sense that it as you put it it's it's more of like a an abstract floating aesthetic that is much more cartoony um you know you have like zany vaudeville sounds coming in like boings and things like <laughs> that that you would associate with earlier yeah, animation yeah yeah th- things that things that make you notice that it's a playful like synthesis yeah or or symbol of what it's supposed to to me right. you know you hear right. boing and you think bounce you don't think yeah. wow i just heard someone bounce you right know? so these multiple registers of meaning and sensation and movement are are interesting because because disney will increasingly and there there are exceptions along the way but increasingly will abandon this for the hyper newtonian mode and so it's interesting for that reason and then if you connect it up with the um what you might call the political economy of the aesthetics right not necessarily mm-hmm. even the political economy of the narrative contract and its zero sum logics yeah the political economy of the aesthetics of the film are they're fascinating because they're they're they tend to reflexively flaunt drawing and writing and surfaces and glistening and glittering mm-hmm. and permeability and magic and change and transformation and possibilities that are not necessarily zero sum. Yeah, yeah. You you have glittering that happens way underwater where there's no light source, you know, like yeah. gl- glittering, whereas... Yeah, it wouldn't be like like this rainbow at the end that is rendered a little bit more in in that kind of um proto proto Pixar kind of way. Yeah, I mean that that is a style where the the glitter would I mean they would go out of their way to flaunt it, but it would be a way of flaunting its its realism, you know, like they would also put put a light bulb right above it <laughs> you know <laughs> the pixar lamp right yeah the pixar lamp and all the light refracting off of it but mm-hmm. i think it's pretty i think it's pretty cartoonish still um yeah. and it, it that's interesting too that, that it's an that's an emblem of how one could use computerized digital animation tools in ways that aren't aren't necessarily hyper newtonian and of course all kinds of people do will do so and have done so um and my concern is just with the the dominant mode, not that the dominant mode is the only yeah. mode. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that there's something interestingly non-zero sum about this sort of, and it's femme-coded and queer-coded, the sparkly, glittery surface and writing logics of the of the aesthetics, you know, and that that do take place, you know, on the surface of water. Um, that take place or are figured through um, Triton's uh, scepter, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what actually makes, as I said, that's what makes possible granting her her wish, her want, right? And and to me, that's this kind of, this little glimpse of MMT Hmm. possibility, which is like, oh, Ursula zero-sum contract wasn't necessary because and of course you know we would want to critique like any logic of sovereignty and like the sovereign phallus making this possible but still it renders it 
retroactively renders the con the zero sum contract as like fundamentally unnecessary. Like he could have yeah. done this from the beginning, essentially, mm -hmm. and that we do have the capacity to to build these new worlds. Yeah, and that and that at the at the end, the ability to make that change doesn't follow the intrinsic logic of a contract, but actually follows. You know, it, it is still symbolic, but it is symbolic in, in the sense of Ariel and the seagulls naming of things, you know, in this kind of playful, inventive way, right? Like she's, there's this kind of like, what if I had legs, you know, and like that doesn't, <laughs> like it doesn't cut to someone with their legs amputated after that. Right, um, right, 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 right. And that's yeah. interesting to see. Triton's kind of naming and writing as part of the whole film's interest in naming and writing mm -hmm. and how that, you know, we have to learn how to do that and we have to, and we can do that in different ways and we can misname and rename. Yeah, yeah. And have that be, you know, it, it's interesting because um, one of the most explicit kind of queer coding of of this naming and ultimately of what Triton is going to do at the end of the film is, you know, at the beginning of Ursula's number, she's talking about how she, you know, yeah, I've had a few customer complaints, you know, but overall, you know, people are pretty happy with my horrible deals. <laughs> um, and, and one of them, one of the examples that it shows is like, you know, this person wanted to be... Um, you know, this person wanted to get the girl and this man wanted to be thinner. And so her solution, which is like presented for humor as this kind of, you know, horrible Frankenstein solution that actually neither party wanted is the the man who wants to be thinner is turned into a thin woman for the other man. <laughs> <laughs> um, <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, so it's like right. her her evil shop of horrors and sex change operations and, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but there is an interesting way where that traversal of like in a certain way, I think it's saying that like there there don't actually need to be these these trade offs of in in queer assimilation into the world, mm -hmm. you know, Um you shouldn't need to, in order to be a, a gay man writing, you know, musical numbers, you shouldn't need to do anything to your voice, you know, or, or give it up, right? Um, and, you know, but also, there is this horrible way of doing things um, that is that is very much linked up to you know, I guess, yeah, like a queer trauma, right? Um, which is this experience of just existing as a queer person being this devil's bargain. So I want to um, move toward the, the latter part of our conversation by, I mean, it's funny, I think, uh, I think we were th planning on moving toward the queer at the end, but what, what's happened is we can't we can't manage it. We yeah, can't exclude we're too, it. <laughs> we're too queer. It turns yeah. out, <laughs> right? So I want to. I want to. I want to talk about the the. Um, well, there's so many dimensions to it, um, but before we do, I want to just say something a little bit about the history of the medium of film, Hollywood, and gendered voices. So there mm -hmm. is 
there's a um, there's a there's a history of well, um, on the one hand, films are intensely synthetic and creative constructions, right? And there's nothing inherently unified in the space and time and construction of character about film. Film has to construct unities and continuities from discontinuities. And, you know, with students, I say, you know, every film is, no matter how continuous, is like a Frankenstein monster that's been stitched up, right? Um, and, um, and there's a specific, um, you know, there, there's a history of the voice being, um, you know, ventriloquized and, and recorded and moved to other, other, you know, other performers, um, in ways that, as I was saying, on the one hand is like intrinsic to the medium. Like you can't, it's, it's a little silly to play ontological authenticity that like any performance, any like visual bodily performance must must match with a vocal performance or uh or vice versa um that said hollywood has used on the other hand hollywood has has used those synthetic properties of the medium to do patriarchal crappy things right so the um and often hiding in plain sight so the locus classicus for this is Singing in the Rain, the musical from the 1950s, which is set back in the 1920s, around 1927, when Hollywood was making its transition from silent to sound film. And it stages this this kind of tra tragedy or this drama where um, a beautiful silent uh, woman film star, she has a terrible voice, um, because she didn't need a voice, right, for uh, to be in silent movies, um, suddenly has to make talkies and and is is being asked to make a musical, and she's got a terrible voice and she's got she can't sing at all. So then another woman who's not a film star, played by Debbie Reynolds, um, Kathy is her character name, is asked to dub for this woman. Lena Lamont is the star's name. And the, the film presents this, like it's in the narrative, presents this as um, injustice and then writes it by the end. When in truth, <laughs> somebody else actually did the singing for the dubbing moments in the film. Oh, so great. the film was yeah. doing basically guilty of the very thing that it was calling out as an injustice. And these uh -huh. kinds of things happen all the time. Right. Right. So it's like, on the one hand, you want to affirm the fact that, yeah, like nothing, nothing is self-identical or authentically fused with anything else in the world of cinema. On the other hand, the way things get synthesized are political and they can be mm -hmm. gendered and they can be raced and, and this kind of thing. So I just wanted to point that out that I think, I think all that's in the background of what's, what's going on with Ariel losing her voice in this film, which is that it's playing into that deep history and concern about voice and authenticity. And I think we would want to say that it's so much more complicated than, you know, the woman loses her voice. Right? We've already said that it's complicated because we want her to, we want her to have her voice. And that's, 
staged as a injustice and a trauma. So that's on the side of the audience and what we want, right? Um, and it's speaking to um, this fraught history that we wouldn't want to, yeah, we wouldn't want to naturalize um, a kind of false authenticity in what is a highly abstract constructed um, form of media and popular entertainment. Okay, so I just wanted to get that out. Yeah. Finally, let's let's get into the the kind of deep queer threads of this film, starting with the Danish fairy tale published in 1837 by Hans Christian Andersen called The Little Mermaid. And, you know, this may or may not be news to you all listening, but this, this tale was written overtly as an allegory, not just as a, a, a gender and class allegory, um, because um, the the Little Mermaid was seen to be lower than right. uh, the prince, but also overtly as a queer allegory. And this was based on uh, Hans Christian Andersen was in love with with a man, and his his father was um, he was the wealthy uh, commissioner, financier, right? Yeah, yeah, financier of his artworks, his his. Uh, writings and among his writings he created this tale of 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 you know what we wouldn't have called back in 1837 but was closetedness Mm -hmm. and uh, uh, in a homophobic society Um, and it's a tale of unrequited queer love and um, you know the mermaid is him the mermaid is a gay man um, a closeted gay man, yeah, the, who who has to be closeted in order to make the art that he wants for the father's, like through the father's contracts, right? Yeah, exactly. And so then, that's another way, another voice, another way to read the contract, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, a social contract, right? Like in all of its in all Absolutely. of its amb- ambivalent, yeah. like yeah, yeah, and and then of course. It, it it ends so poorly, right? Because the mermaid dies at the end, like tragically, right? As rejected. So of course, Disney is going to put the Disney polish on all of these <laughs> grim yeah. fairy tales, so to speak. <laughs> um, but um, but it's worth noting that this is a this is a queer allegory. Now, it's not just simply the fact that it's a queer allegory. It is a queer allegory in the late '80s which is at the arguably the height of the AIDS HIV epidemic, um, which is defined by mass political social abandonment of queer people. It is, you know, famously Ronald Reagan wouldn't even say the words, wouldn't even speak to it, let alone allocate monies toward medical research. You saw the rise of all kinds of queer activism like ACT UP uh, in all of its, you know, contested um, multiplicities. Um, By this time, George W., not George W. Bush, George H.W. Bush is in the White House. Um, He has... He acknowledges that it exists, but all he's got is he doesn't have money to spend um, mm-hmm. on a research, you know, medical research or on care. Um, 
all he has is platitudes, moralizing platitudes about, you know, don't do those activities that seem to yeah. lead to this. Yeah, literally, like, you know, he, he has like a, a evil contract for them, right? Which is yeah. like, oh, well, in exchange for living, just don't be gay. Yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. And don't experience sexual pleasure, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And then in addition to this, and I think we've already mentioned it, but now it's going to, I think, resonate differently the the team Alan Menken and Howard Ashman uh, they they uh, they are the the composer and the lyricist so Menken is the composer and Ashman is the lyricist yeah. they're coming from uh, uh, a career on Broadway being lured by Michael Eisner and others to Disney and it's funny you said Shop of Horrors before because. Mm-hmm. They yeah, were yeah. they were little known, shop of horrors, yeah, yeah, for the little <laughs> shop of horrors, which was like this really cheeky, you could argue, queer, um, like um, kind of throwback to the fifties, right? The, mm-hmm. um, uh, but we don't have to talk about little shop of horrors here. Yeah. So they're they're they had they had some frustrations with producers on Broadway after Little Shop of Horrors. Um, and they, they wanted to do things. And I think they ended up coming to Disney because they felt like, well, this could be a new, a new vehicle for, for their experimentation. And I do think that to a certain extent, there's a, you know, uh, there's something more vanilla about, (laughs) about the little mermaid, um, than say the, Little Shop of Horrors. Well, sure, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but I still think that um, Broadway and Broadway's historical um, associations, deep associations with queerness, are being brought to Disney during this period. I think that um, The Little Mermaid is kicking off a series of very Broadway-esque um, Disney Renaissance Films and then, of course, as we've said, Howard Ashman is an out uh, queer man who, in the midst of finishing up *The Little Mermaid*, um, is diagnosed with HIV/AIDS, mm-hmm. and um, he's also beginning to work on *Aladdin*, which is not an unproblematic film. <laughs> but Aladdin and the Beauty and the Beast. And he he really was, he wasn't just the lyricist. I mean, he really, he was kind of a co-director. He he um, really sh- put his, he, he really put his creative energy into more than just the lyrics. He was responsible for um, the look and feel um, of all three of these films. And he lives to see uh, Little Mermaid come out um, but then dies before Aladdin or um, the Lion, uh, not the Lion King, the Aladdin or Beauty and the Beast mm-hmm. come out. And, um, you know, and, and it's a tragic situation. And so the what's fascinating is that he's he's this queer lyricist who's who's a kind of a kind of major co-director, co-participant in making these films during this moment when gay visibility and gay politics are so intense and so intense around AIDS and HIV. 
So there have been all kinds of debates then and since about, you know, is this a queer allegory? Is it not? And, you know, is the was did Ashman intend to, you know, include lines that um, in the songs that somehow sp- directly allegorize the AIDS crisis or these kinds of things? Yeah. And, and pe- Based on our ask- reading, that's definitely missing the point, <laughs> you yeah, know, which right. is which is polyvocality is not traceable to intention yeah exactly right so it it is fascinating that as america and the world (laughs) um is um reckoning with aids and reckoning with queerness in a new way um and in part reckoning with it by repressing it and denying it or trying to seal it off or um trying to abandon people mm-hmm. um, as it's doing. So some of the most popularly enjoyed family entertainment yeah. <laughs> of the late nineties, I mean, late eighties and nineties is, is, is suffused with queer Broadway sensibilities. So there's a kind of queer philia at work here that um, I just find fascinating, fascinating. And then, as we've said, it doesn't stop there, right? So they, they, the animators um, were trying to work out, well, what is Ursula the Witch going to look like? And they had all kinds of um, experiments with, you know, different forms and shapes and, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and finally, it was Ashman, I believe, who mm-hmm. was like, oh, that's starting to look like Divine, yeah, the, yeah, John Waters. Uh, John Waters muse, yeah. right? Right. Um, so, and it, it then she was developed as this kind of drag queen witch. Um, so that's just yet another layer. And I think you know we can do on the one hand, on the other hand, again with this character, which is on the on the one hand, um, or there's so many hands. There's more than two hands <laughs> always. So so we've said, oh well, she's villainized as you know the queer and she's villainized as a projection of Disney's own evil contract homophobia and contract making. Yeah. Yeah. So, but something else that's going on here is that she's, she's like the most compelling character in the entire film, right? Yeah. Yeah. She's really fun. Um, She's so fun. She's, she's voiced by the, the actress, Pat Carroll, who just like really sells it. And she was doing line readings, mimicking Howard Ashman, who had ideas about how, how he wanted her to sound. Um, so it's kind of like co-voicing her, her character. And she's just got this swagger and she, she is speaking truth to power to patriarchy, right? She yeah. learned that, that she was Triton, exiled. Yeah. 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 And, and she says, you know, truisms about like, you know, guys never want to hear a girl talk, and you know we're 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 supposed to like agree with her and say that sucks, right? Yeah. Um, and all from the vo- the voice of a of a drag queen. So it's not even that clear that like oh they're villainizing the the queer. It's like no, they're also asking us to like indulge and you know yeah. Like, well, and and at at the level of the story, I think you know her 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 kind of like super in your face kind of 
um, assault on Triton's sensibilities um, and the sensibilities of Sebastian, the musical composer, right? Because her musical numbers are these, you know, cabaret, like, you know, um, underbelly, like, you know, let me show you, you know, what what the world is really like, kid, you know, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. like that kind of stuff. Um, it all is being shaped in this kind of playful relationship with the normative world that is excluding it and that at the same time we're being given uh glimpses of its own kind of yearnings for that right like triton's you know kind of feminine swooning you know and and ariel's desire for yeah to to go above above land um and and get legs right and in a certain way i think that the evil contract that ursula gives gives ariel you know that like you can have your legs but it's gonna cost you um is also you know like implied that's that was ursula's trauma right like you can be this this drag queen but there's a price you're gonna be exiled Absolutely. And this is a, such a great segue to one of my most favorite um, academic books, in part because it's just not an academic. I mean, it's, it was written by an academic, but it doesn't read like an academic book. Mm-hmm. So it's it's by an author, an English scholar, um, a scholar of English language, uh, uh, English literature. Um, he also writes about film. His name is D.A. Miller. Mm-hmm. Um, and the book is called Place for Us, Essay on the Broadway Musical. And right, it's a, which, which and, might as well be called part of your world, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and it's in part autobiographical um, in the essayistic tradition of Michel de Montaigne. Um, and I couldn't possibly summarize it here. But what he's getting at is a, a certain kind of collective cultural construction and relationship to Broadway musicals in the mid-century moment, a moment defined by uh, what has been called the Lavender Scare. Um, So it's part of the Red Scare, actually, where queerness is uh, newly vilified and vilified in its associations with communism, uh, imagined usually, um, Mm -hmm. sometimes not, and a kind of yeah, a white heteronormative patriarchal culture supposedly um, reasserting its dominance after World War II when, as most uh, you know, queer historians would tell you, you know, World War II was a pretty queer experiment. Yeah. You, you had lots of, lots of men with men and lots of women with women overseas in new places. Yeah, and, and, and drag shows also and, you know, these kind of, yeah, masquerade ball kind of things. And yeah. Yeah, very... Um, it's this interesting time because the the whole society like there is um you know there there is a reading of you know america's kind of fascist unconscious and the the desire for a all hands on deck war mobilization where everyone has a place but there also was this acute awareness of fascism um and a desire to hold open the possibility for something that's like, how do you have a democratic mobilization, you know? And and so at, at the very least, yeah, there was there was a in in a desire to preserve some kind of an, an internal democracy. Yeah, I think that there was more of a permissible 
culture. I mean, certainly, you know, Nazi uh, soldiers were not doing drag shows, drag performances, <laughs> you know, so there's that. Yeah, um, yeah. So in the post-war period, you have all kinds of restrictions and policings and repressions and, and expulsions from government and, mm -hmm. right, this, this renewed... Yeah, put the genie back in the bottle. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And what D.A. Miller's book is in part exploring is the way that Broadway talent and Broadway creativity uh, and Broadway, yeah, you know, narrative writing and, and number writing and lyricism and performance and spectatorship and audience making becomes a kind of site for those anxieties and desires to kind of congeal and mm -hmm. um and they are you know messy and contradictory and often repressed but one of his overall arguments is to say that no one is excluded from this that it's a kind of open secret that broadway means queer in the mid-century and no matter what position you take uh whether it's bigoted and disgusting or fully embracing it or being you know a gay man who says i'm gay but you know i don't like broadway you know mm -hmm. right? um right. everyone is implicated in like mediating and constructing what sexuality and what queerness and what homosexuality means in this moment in this in this open way through broadway through the stage through the through you know, soundtrack albums through popular advertisements, through newspaper columns. There's no one who's exempt. And I think what's interesting is to take this understanding of mid-century Broadway, which again, I, this is only the tip of the iceberg, um, and bring it to the Disney Renaissance. And to say that in a way, there's a kind of, it, if there's a renaissance, it's not just a rebirth of classical era Disney, which we associate with more retrograde values, but there's a renaissance of Broadway here. And that renaissance is a kind of queer one that, that isn't exactly fully out, but I think it's more out than the mid-century one. Um, and in this case is is mediating not just what queerness means and what sexuality means and what supposed heterosexuality means, but it's mediating a, a mass epidemic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a huge, mo and when we say mediating here, such a heavy, yeah, discursive um, aspect of that, you know, or like this, 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 like pop culture, it furnishes our own interiority in a lot of ways and our own spaces of contemplation and reflection and you know, points of reference. And so, yeah, it's, it's such a, it's such a deeper, yeah, it's, it's part of the, the provisioning of interiority, right. And the provisioning yeah. of conversation and of reflection. So to come back to, to our, our favorite meme, <laughs> Confederate Ariel, yeah. don't, Lover. don't take yeah. away my history, right? Well, we're not, we've given you your history, you know, there's more to be said, but but this is the history of The Little Mermaid. Mm -hmm. um, and it turns out maybe it's not the history that, that you thought it was. And to come back to the, to the present 
climate in the present context we we can't we cannot um think about the release of this trailer and then the future release of the live action little mermaid without thinking about ongoing police brutality against people of color we cannot do so without thinking about the largest global protest in world history the mm -hmm. black lives matter protests we cannot think about rising e-liberalisms fascisms autocracies um um around the world and including in um the state of florida the the state in which i live yeah and the state and, where and, disney yeah. has huge stakes right and where disney has become a kind of contested institution you know by you know basically yeah the, the, it has become the site of a sort of lavender scare um and you know by governor ron DeSantis and um and just the the far right kind of yeah propaganda machine um that has you know whether or not it's it's again i guess just another study in kind of polyvocality right um that that we can um oppose disney in so many different ways um and and still yet, affirm elements yeah yeah and and recognize that it is a contested um institution in all of the myriad ways that an institution exists in the world you know which is not just as what it does quote unquote right because there's no way to hermetically seal that um but what it means right which is a question that's inherently open exactly and you know we also have to talk about the fact that there are many many queer employees at disney at pixar in the production side at the at the parks right um that yeah played yeah. a role in um in the disney corporation being pressured to to step up and say that that desantis's don't say gay bill censoring lgbtq existence let alone pedagogy in the state uh was unjust yeah it's just it's it's so interesting because there there is this kind of you know there's the far right what used to be you know sometimes masquerading as leftist when we certainly when we began superstructure but now it's i think a lot more associated just plainly with the far right but a a critique of you know like whether now i guess you would you would hear people say woke capital right um or yeah just a, a way in which the fact that that disney uh is in in certain in certain places um a huge both em employer and provisioning authority for um you know lgbt people and it, like their the way that they live in public life that that must be proof of the inherent non-radicalness of being lgbt right um and it's just i i'm just always struck by how you know no nobody like 
like no no one is is decrying like you know the restaurant like you know we shouldn't be eating at restaurants because you know or people who work at restaurants are part of the problem or whatever like it's just <laughs> it's this weird like yeah i don't know it's just hypocrisies ab- abound that are yeah that are just plainly homophobic and and you know racist and misogynist and you know all of these things that are everything that is an institution of the advancement of any kind of marginalized person. You also see this with, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? Um, departments in places, you know, that these are treated as like the univocal emissaries of global capital rather than, rather than these, you know, contested and, you know, multivalent, you know, sites of, of employment uh, of and for ends that are not normatively white and in complicated ways within institutions that in many other ways obviously are normatively white. But there's kind of not a, you know, the world being multiplicitous. This is like, this is what, what inclusion, like inclusion of any kind will always be open to this criticism, you know? So it's just, it, it always is, instructive i guess who the criticism gets levied against it it occurred to me when we were talking about the rainbow thing um but n- now now that we're at the end i feel like i have yeah this is a warrant to bring up a rainbow um there is also a very funny kind of a allegorical reading of the rainbow as like disney's promise to not flood the earth again <laughs> Um, you know, like this horrible, horrible violence of, of hostile takeovers everywhere and all of that. Disney's like, never again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is m- me. This is my as God's promise to you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, but um, but of course, you know, rainbows are are complicated and every story has an ending. And so this, is, I think, is going to be. It's going to be ours. Um, do you have yeah. any any closing thoughts? No, I think uh, we uh, talked about absolutely every single thing that we could possibly talk about. I think so. Yeah, I think that we I think that we total mas- meaning we mastered this text. So yeah. we we own it now, um, mm-hmm. which is it's more deep than copyright because now it's a social relation. Right. And we will sue you if you try to talk about it. Yeah, with violence, um, which is, again, <laughs> what suing is trying to approximate. Um, you know, we'll come over and get you. Um, <laughs> you poor right, well, unfortunate so souls. Yeah, thank you. This was a lot of fun. <laughs>